0: When your child is trying to show you that they are anxious and you're showing them that you don't get it, they're just gonna raise the volume of that signal. They're gonna try harder to show you.
1: Welcome to Hope to Recharge podcast. Thank you for joining me here again today. Every week we meet here to break the stigma around mental health and to bring you insight and inspiration and lots of practical tips from personal stories or professionals around the world that share how they turn their journey of mental health into healing or to thriving. Together we will break the stigma one story at a time. In mental health, together is always better. Thank you for joining me here today. I'm your host, Matana. Let's get started.
2: In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Dr. and Professor Ellie Leibowitz. Dr. Liebowitz is a published professor who studies and treats childhood and adolescent anxiety and is the director of the Program for Anxiety Disorders at the Yale Child Study Center. His research focuses on the development, neurobiology, and treatment of anxiety and related disorders with special emphasis on cross-generational and family influences in these disorders. Dr. Liebutz is the lead investigator on multiple funded research projects and is the author of numerous research papers and of books and chapters on childhood and adolescent anxiety. He received his postdoctoral associate degree at Yale University School of Medicine and his PhD at Tel Aviv University in clinical psychology. He also interned at Schneider's Children's Medical Center. Dr. Dr. Leibowitz has received numerous awards from Yale Center for Clinical Investigation and other organizations for his work, the American Psychological Association, Anxiety and Depression Association of America, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the International OCD Foundation. In this episode, Dr. Leibowitz discusses principles from his book, Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, which, based on his extensive clinical work, neurobiology, and brain research, help the patterns and chain of children's anxiety. A step-by-step guide, literally a Bible for families that have children with OCD and anxiety, Dr. Lieberwitz's work is critical in helping parents to address the needs of children suffering from OCD and anxiety. And now your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana.
1: Before we start this episode, a quick heads up that I have a 10 to 15 minute conversation with Dr. Leibowitz that did not get published on this episode and it's premium content where I ask him personal stories from my personal questions from my life and my experiences with my children and the advice he gives me. Absolutely gold. If you want to hear this conversation, you can find the link in the show notes and you will hear more about it at the end of the episode. Enjoy this episode. Thank you everyone for joining. I am so grateful and excited about today's interview. I was just chatting with our incredible special guest that I'm going to introduce in a moment. And I was explaining how today I'm above and beyond excited because I feel like I'm getting a VIP therapy session from somebody that really helped me in understanding my childhood, my anxiety, how my parents wish they had the book that I have for my children and how I'm trying to break the chain of addressing my children's anxiety and maybe even my anxiety. So today I have Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. Thank you for joining me here.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be on.
1: And so you're a professor as well. Let's hear a little bit about your background because you did research and your book is based on a lot of research and a lot of sweat And uh, time and compassion and and love to the community of OCD and anxiety. So uh, give us a little bit of your background. First of
0: all, thanks. So I'm at the Yale Child Study Center in New Haven, where I direct the program for anxiety disorders and my work really is very much at the interface of clinical work and research. So we do a lot of research. We do clinical trials. We do neurobiology and brain research, but all of it is really informed and driven by clinical work with families, work with children, and a lot of work with parents. Mm. Even when we're doing research, we're really very much working with families and with parents. And that's really what informs pretty much everything that I do.
1: And I, and that's why I think it's so important, because one of the things that I was telling you before that we started, once I started this podcast, we started support groups. And what I see is that one child can suffer and a whole family can fall apart. And, it, and they fall apart just because there's not enough awareness of how to support that one child that the other siblings don't get the slack of it or get put on the back burner or not cared for because we're so focused on this one child that is struggling with anxiety or OCD or whatever it is, any challenge, but you specialize with anxiety and OCD. And it's, it's painful to watch marriages that can fall apart families that can fall apart. And if they would have this book that's so clear, your book is so clear on what to do and what not to do. I think a lot of books on mental health are very much theory. What does the brain do? How does it function? What's a panic attack? What happens after a panic attack? What's the fear from a panic attack? What you do in this book, you give us a step-by-step guide. It's a guide. It's literally a Bible for families that have children with OCD and anxiety. And as I was reading the book, I was like, but what if this happens? Oh, next chapter talks about it. And it gives me worksheets and it doesn't let me start until i figure it out and i think that part of your the the greatness of this book is that we have you as dr ellie in our mind constantly and as we're writing our homework and you will say, "Okay, now read it over. Is it right? Is it wrong? Did you do it right? Can we reread it?" So we're going to get into what this book is all about. The book is called Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD: A Scientifically proven program for parents. Can it be more clear?
0: Thank you for everything that you said about the book. That is some amazing feedback and really nothing could make me feel better about this than the kinds of feedback that you're giving me because this isn't the first book that I've written but it's the one that I really wanted to write for a long time Mm -hmm. and was most excited about because other books have really focused more on the professional side of the equation the therapist the provider the clinician but what I really wanted to do and this is why I've just so excited about this book is is really speak directly to parents. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book. And that's why it is not a a jargony book. It's not a lingo heavy book. Anybody can pick this up and read it. You don't need a background in science or mental health, etc. You just need to be someone who's interested or concerned about this, about your child or about child um, anxiety. And so really trying to make it as practical and, like you said, guiding in a step-by-step kind of way the process. Interestingly to me, one of the things that I've heard in some of the feedback that I've gotten is that with everything that I said, a lot of therapists actually end up using this book as well. Oh,
1: I was going to (laughs) say, it probably goes great with a therapist as well. But I would say if I I was thinking of that the whole time and also parent like therapists, how to guide the children. So the child goes to therapy for an hour a week, right? 45 minutes. Then they come home for the rest of the week, hundreds of hours, maybe even, I don't even know how many hours are in a week, but the parent has to deal with... It. So how do we not destroy what goes on in therapy and accommodate the next therapy session goes even more so active and there's a plan and you talk about the plan a lot in this book. So first of all, if there's any parent out there, any parent that you're even thinking, does my child have OCD or anxiety? Pick up the book before you go to any therapist, just pick up the book because it could be, you'll have so many answers given to you. And maybe you can even start the planning before you even go to therapy. Now, therapy is always good for children with anxiety and OCD. Always good. But sometimes it's the shortcut of just implementing things at home. And this book has it all. I want to first, before we go into the book, I want to share about my childhood. I'm not sure if I was never diagnosed with OCD. I was, I self-diagnosed myself with OCD all along. It was not even awareness of therapy. I grew up in the ultra-Orthodox world back in the day. I don't even think that there was a therapist in our community that sought children. Maybe there was, maybe I'm just naive. But one of the things that I struggled with as a child, and until today, I don't use public bathrooms. I don't. I won't go into a public bathroom. And I trained myself that I don't drink. I don't go to sleepaway camps. I didn't go out of sleep, sleepaway camps. I didn't go to sleepovers. If I did go to a sleepover, I made sure to go home first. Like my whole life was around I do not go to public bathrooms. And it wasn't so much about the cleanliness. It was the fear. There was like some, I think I had OCD with anxiety together as soon. And this is, I'm talking from four years old. I remember the the world would just close on me. As soon as I would open the door to see a bathroom, I would feel black, dark, like Mm. overwhelming of fear. And I would run out. And until today, and when we got married, my husband's like, we can't fly to Israel. If you're not going to go to the bathroom when you're pregnant, it's just not going to happen. Now I trained myself. I flew from Israel to Hong Kong to Australia without using a bathroom, unless it was a five-star hotel. Sometimes I would say, okay, I'll find a five-star hotel. And in my mind, it was like, okay, it was clean. It was nice. It was, I don't even know what the fear was, but clearly not healthy, not healthy to the degree when my kids were born, I would tell them, mommy doesn't go to public bathrooms. So you're just going to have to wait. And that's when I said, oh my God, that's
0: terrible. Mm, I think your story just captures so much. and I think it's going to resonate with so many people because even if your fear isn't bathrooms, right? Even if what limits you or what scares or bothers you is something completely different, there's so much in th- everything that you just said that I think captures so many elements of what it's like growing up with that level of anxiety or OCD symptoms, starting with the really early age at which these problems often onset maybe four years old. And that's not uncommon for these problems to start. It's amazing. Even when an adult is first diagnosed with an anxiety problem at any age, their, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 70s. If you ask that person, when did this problem start for you? The most common answer is, this has always been part of my life. Mm. This is not a new problem. This is maybe mm. I can remember myself. Yeah. And also, you touched on the lack of resources. I lived in Israel too for many years. Mm. And it's interesting to me because you talked about the lack of therapists in the community. And interestingly, I was, because I have an observant background myself, Mm -hmm. I, and I am observant now as well, I became the therapist for many people from the ultra-Orthodox and very Orthodox communities and would Mm -hmm. see many families. Mm -hmm. But for every family that I saw, I knew there were so many people who were not getting help. And so often it just... Broke my heart because I might see somebody in a family, and it was done in secret, without even another person in the same nuclear family being allowed to know because of yes. the of stigma. I would meet with with a woman; her husband couldn't know that she was going to therapy or maybe getting a medication, and it's just heartbreaking the the lack of of resources, the impact on everybody in the family. Yeah. And that is just exactly how these problems work. And it it just reminded me, if I can share an anecdote too, not from my own life, mm-hmm. but from an experience that I had professionally, I met with with a young woman who had very severe OCD her whole life. Mm-hmm. She was probably in her late twenties when I met her and had really severe OCD. She was married. She had a child. She had suffered from contamination fears for the longest time. And what drove her into Therapy. Finally, what got her to actually get help was when she realized the impact this was having on her toddler, yeah. on her young child. Because yeah. this kid, if dad took him to the playground, the amount of cleaning rituals that they would have to go through when this child came home were just awful. And I actually asked her to bring this child in uh, to a session one time, and I will tell you, I've never seen anything like it. But this eighteen-month-old baby and if, if you've ever wow. seen an 18 month old baby wow. and i'm sure you and many yes. of us, your listeners have yes uh, you know what they're like yeah right they're all yeah. over they're calling yeah. they're maybe they're walking they're putting everything in their mouth this baby sat there with his hands in the air i've never seen 18 month old 18 month old baby just came into the room she put him down and he just sat there with his hands in the air oh my and God. when i saw that it just Really was the most poignant and and powerful demonstration of the impact that these problems can have. And we talk a lot about the accommodation that parents do of mm. their children's symptoms. Right. this was a child who had learned before age two to accommodate his parents symptoms, but to her credit, this woman did realize and did come and did get help and was able to overcome
1: mm. her
0: really severe OCD. Mm. anyway, just listening to your personal recollections. And it really resonates with me. I think it will resonate with many of your listeners as well.
1: Thinking back for an episode that I had with when I was first a mom, like way back, I married 20 years and my oldest is almost 19. And I remember an incident of going somewhere with my children and the only bathroom there was a porta potty, and it was not even an option. You're not going in there. I'm not going in there. You're going to just keep it in until we get home. And in my mind, oh, I go 18 hours. So you're a f- three-year-old of course you're gonna keep it in mm. and there was no option there was not like there was no let's figure out an option it was no option and then my child had an accident and mm. I started crying and and I was upset this is like one of the most mortifying stories that I'm gonna mm. and I share it's mortifying and I mm. share it even though like I have a pit in my stomach sharing it because it's so important to see how damaging parents can be when they're not aware. Now I was aware, but it was normal for me. I was so accommodating on my own that it was normal. It was normal. And you talk about accommodating in the book. Then it clicked. I'm like, I'm making this little girl feel bad. Mm. She's three and I'm going to make her feel bad. And then I'm like, okay, I have to go to therapy for this. I need to figure it out. P.S. I never got over my fear of bathrooms. I do I do have them go on their own. When we travel as a family, they accommodate me. They really accommodate me. And maybe it's wrong. Either my husband goes or somebody else goes with the children. I I would say that it's not an absolute no to not go into the bathroom now. Like Mm. I don't have a panic attack. I don't see the, I try to avoid it as much as possible, but if I need to, I will go into a bathroom. I'll postpone it as much as possible, but that wake up call of me saying of me being angry at my daughter that she didn't keep to my standards Mm. was the breaking point for me. And I'm grateful that it happened because who knows how damaging I could have been for my rest of my five children. And I was accommodated. And you talk about this in the book a lot is how much do we accommodate our children that have anxiety and OCD. So before we go into accommodation, how do we know if it's anxiety, OCD, or it's just being specific as people, oh, they're specific with food, with, smells, with touch? How do we know?
0: This is such an important question, and yet
1: also a really
0: tricky one. It sounds like a simple question, but it's actually a a tricky one. And the reason it's tricky is that we are still, even in, it's now 2022, I almost said 2021, even in 2022, we are still in very primitive stages of really developing mental health as a medical field. And It's not an exaggeration to say that this is a field that is centuries behind a lot of other areas. And that means that we rely on some rather primitive and crude tools. And for most problems in mental health, we don't have an x-ray or a blood test. We have fancy tools like uh, MRI, brain imaging, but they're not going to give us a diagnosis. They're, They're really great for research. We learn a tremendous amount, but they're not going to give us a diagnosis. And so what we do when we're trying to figure out is this a child or a person with a psychopathology, a mental disorder in this domain, say anxiety or OCD, but the same really hold true for other domains of mental health also, or are they just a person with some quirks maybe, some like you said, uh <laughs> very specific, maybe they're rigid things like that. What we'll think about is a, the level of interference and impairment in that person's ability to function in daily mm. life. Meaning you can have a lot of quirks. You can have lots of really specific kinds of idiosyncratic mm. like things that you do different. But if you're able to go through life pretty yeah. much normally, Mm -hmm. Despite those things, then we won't rush to call it a disorder. Even if somebody else would look at it and say, hey, that's weird, we're not going to rush to call it a disorder if it's not interfering with your function. But when it does start to interfere, Mm -hmm. we think about function across the main domains in which. Children, for example, are expected to function, right? Like, are you able to attend school? Are you able to function and achieve in school, whether socially or or academically? Are you able to have relationships with friends, with family? Are you able to feel okay on the personal level, to sleep okay at night, to eat during the day, Mm. to be active and interested in the things that Mm. interest you? The more interference we start to see across all of those different domains, and the more it's lasting, for a significant amount of time, the more we're going to consider diagnosing it as a mental disorder. And if you go into middle school on the first week of a new school year, you're gonna see lots of kids who look like they all have social anxiety. into a new classroom and it takes time to get used to it. Or if you go to kindergarten on the first day of school, you're gonna see lots of kids Mm. who look like they have separation anxiety. Mm. They don't, they're just adjusting. Mm -hmm. But if you come back a month later, Mm. you're gonna see a small number of kids who still are struggling who still are not able to function normally and those are the kids who are likely suffering from an actual disorder so those are the things that we think about the level of distress that it's causing and the level of interference in daily life
1: so it's similar to addiction right they say addiction is how frequent and how much does it interrupt your relationships your function so it's the same idea
0: it's the same idea and you're going to you're going to see that idea coming up again and again across lots of areas of of mental health precisely Mm -hmm. because we don't have real objective kind of external, you know, markers. Are you depressed or are you just sad? Is it anxiety or are you just a little stressed, Mm -hmm. for example? And and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's similar to addiction and and really to a lot of problems in in our field.
1: So now thinking back, so I for sure dealt with anxiety my whole life, but only when I was married with three children, did I have depression and anxiety with full-blown panic attacks that I couldn't function, that Mm. I was not eating, not sleeping in bed, afraid to walk. I just didn't function. And that's when I took action in and out of the hospital, getting treatment, medication. And then I did the holistic neuroplasticity and I was able to literally fix my brain. That Mm. was maybe was able to be fixed back in the day. If I was aware that, There's even something that's holding me back. And it was just piling.
0: I think you really make an important point because first of all, I think it's it's amazing the journey that you've had and, and that you have and the way that you've harnessed it and leveraged it into something that becomes such an important resource for so many other Mm. people and the brave way that you talk about your, and this is our first time meeting and I'm learning and maybe your listeners are already more knowledgeable about a lot of your personal experiences than I am. but, But I think it's really valuable to have somebody who is willing to talk in this kind of an open way. But what you said, I think also makes another important point.
1: Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you wanna get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, Boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about: forgiveness, self-forgiveness, and forgiveness to others. Essential for healing. I put together a package for those that want to increase their wellness in their life and implement these techniques, custom-made for their lives. If you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's a custom made program for you, one-on-one with me. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you.
0: What you said I think also makes another important point, and that is we've been talking for the past couple of minutes about when is it a disorder or when is it not. However, it doesn't have to be in order to do something about it. Mm. You don't actually have to wait for the problem to reach the point of, okay, now this is a mental health disorder, and therefore it should be treated. There is so much that you can do before that, and often you can actually avert that. You can avoid it really reaching that point of so much interference. The only people who think, that you should only do treatment when you have a diagnosable disorder are insurance companies. (laughs) (laughs) I'm regretting saying too much on a recorded uh, (laughs) recorded podcast, but in a sense, I'm I'm making a real point, which is a lot of, for, for many people in the U.S., your access to care is going to be limited by the question of whether or not you have a disorder. But if you think about not that but you think about could this be helpful could it be valuable is there something that i could be doing to help this child that doesn't require that you have a diagnosable mental health condition and very often you can actually change that trajectory by intervening early parent work through the book that you were mentioning the breaking free book they can do that even if their child doesn't have a mental disorder that would be diagnosed per the DSM and have to wait for that. And I think that there's so much that we can do before. And I think your example from your own life really drives home that point.
1: Yeah. And as I said, it should be oh there's a book um how to talk to children that they should listen. Every mm-hmm. parent is buying them. It was mm-hmm. in my bathroom for I think nine years. Nine years. And every child was we had to do the review and as they got older we had to do and then we got the t- so this is one of those things we're going to get to anxious moments with children that will make them stop showing up in certain parts in life. And I'm going to share a few of my children's points and I want your opinion on it because I think a lot of our listeners will resonate. So as you said, it doesn't have to be a big diagnosis and you don't wait like I did for rock bottom because the recovery was brutal. I had three children at the time. I was not functioning. I had to get a whole team to help me recover. And it was years. It was years and years. Now, I do believe in the power of rock bottom because we work that much harder to get out and we don't overlook it. But I think I wouldn't, the recovery wouldn't be so brutal if I had these tools and Quite frankly, when I read the book, I'm like, thank God my parents didn't have these tools because I do not, I did not want to hear from them. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through this. You'll be okay. I did not want to hear. And that's like, I'm going to go into that question Mm -hmm. with you because the entire time I'm reading, I'm like. Thank God they didn't have it. Thank God, because I'm so happy I figured it out on my own because they would actually empower me to go into a bathroom and that would be hell for me. So let's start touching upon the the gifts that you give us in the book. So in the book, you say that there's, there's first of all, recognition. There's a, a factor of recognizing our child is having anxiety or OCD to not say, oh, it's nothing, it's not you, it's everybody else, oh, it's normal. Accept it and validate their feelings and their experience.
0: Yes, exactly. This is one ingredient in the recipe that I'm suggesting for cooking up what I call a supportive response to a child. It's a really simple recipe it just has two ingredients, but you do need both of them. And that is one of them, is that acceptance, that validation, because you really can't support somebody if you can't begin with just accepting where they currently are, what they are currently experiencing. And so often our intuition, well-intentioned, but it takes us in the opposite direction. I have three children and they're all anxious some of the time. And one of them is anxious a lot of the time. And I still catch myself doing the same thing. My my kid will say something like, it's scary. And I'll say, oh, no, it's not. Mm. And then I want to like slap myself in the face. because (laughs) because That's not a supportive response, right? If for this child in this moment, it is scary. And when I say that to him, I don't mean to say, I don't believe you're lying or something like that. I, I probably mean something like, you don't need to be scared or it's not dangerous, or I'm not scared of it. But I'm saying to him, it's not scary when his experience, his brain, his body is telling him it is. And so you start cooking up that support with that first ingredient, which is simply acceptance, validation, just acknowledging. And it's easy. You just, all you need to do is say something simple, like I get it, this is scary for you. You don't have to say it's scary for yourself. Mm -hmm. That's okay. You don't have to feel the same thing. Mm-hmm. But this is scary for you, or you're worried, or it's hard for you, or you're anxious, or you're uncomfortable, whatever the word is that seems to capture what it is that your child is experiencing. But just start with that really simple acknowledgement. And I can guarantee, because some, I know that some parents have this concern that if they do that validation, that's going to actually make it bigger, that it's going to make it worse. Yes. Like if we acknowledge it, then we're giving it a stage. And we're going to make it a bigger deal. Yes. I can tell you from so much experience, not just with my own child, although also, but from a lot of experience behind that too, it's the opposite that happens. When your child is trying to show you that they are anxious and you're showing them that you don't get it, they're just going to raise the volume of that signal. They're going to try harder to show you. And so it's going to get bigger. When you validate what someone is feeling, you downregulate that feeling. That's true for anxiety. It's even true for other feelings. If someone is angry and you tell them, why are you angry? They're not going to get calmer, right? They're going to get madder. But if you tell them, I see that you're really mad right now, they start to feel a little bit calmer inside because somebody sees it, right? It's reflected back to me. And so it has a down regulating effect. It like helps to turn that dial in the calmer direction rather than the opposite. And so you start with that simple acceptance and validation. But then the other ingredient, because remember this is a two ingredient recipe Hmm. and you can't just do one of them. The other ingredient in a supportive response is confidence. Meaning I'm showing you that I, as the parent, I believe that you can actually handle that difficult experience that I just validated. And the two things are not contradictory. I'm not saying it's nothing, I'm saying it's a really hard thing, but I'm sure that you can handle it. And so you put it together. It sounds like I know that this is really frightening for you. And I'm sure that you can handle that feeling. And I'm not saying I'm sure that you're going to stand up right now and go in the bathroom, which you're scared of, or that you're going to do anything, really. And I'm not even trying to persuade you to agree with me. This is, I think, a place where some parents get a little bit Confused about what I mean because they'll say something like, Yeah, I said
1: it, but the kid doesn't agree. In the book, you explain it very well. So, like, this is a a very fast forward version. The book is so (laughs) step by step what it means and what it doesn't mean. So, that's why I highly recommend we're doing a very abbreviated version of the book, but the book really holds your hands. I I highly recommend reading it a a number of times. Yeah, sorry, I just needed to say that That book is
0: the closest thing that I was able to make to. I'm going to meet with you, the parent, once a week, every week for like three months. And we're going to work through a process because that's how you overcome these problems. And I know that there are so many parents who are not going to be able to meet with a therapist every week for three months. And so I wanted to make something that was the closest thing to that. But yeah, what we're doing now is the nutshell version, right? right? The the fast forward condensed version. But the point was that I'm just telling you something about me. I'm telling you what I know. What I believe, what I see. I see that you're anxious and I believe that you can handle it. And even though I'm not trying to make you agree, I'm not trying to make you change your mind or or really do anything, it has a really strong effect over time. Maybe not the first time you say it, but over time, it has a really strong effect on how the child feels because that child and every child is looking to their parents to figure out things about themselves. I say to parents, you're like a mirror and your child is looking in the mirror and they're seeing who they are Mm. from your reactions, from your responses. And if what they see reflected back to them is a child who's always weak, vulnerable, helpless, overwhelmed, can't cope, can't deal, what are they going to believe about themselves? Exactly that. They're going to see themselves as unable to withstand anxiety. And that, is pretty much the worst thing for an anxious child to believe about themselves, that they can't handle anxiety. We want them to believe the opposite, that yeah, anxiety sucks and it's so uncomfortable and we hate it, but we can handle it. I can deal with it. And so as you start making those supportive responses and you make that just the way that you communicate about this again and again, you may get along the way a lot of, stop saying that, it's annoying, I Mm. don't want to hear that but you're changing the way that child sees themselves and that's going to have a really profound effect.
1: I, so the, one of the, the things that I keep on hearing in my mind as an adult that suffers from anxiety, I came a long way and I know how to calm myself down. But when I was first dealing with panic attacks, The last thing I wanted someone to tell me, you're going to be okay. I see it's hard. And all I could think is you have no idea what you're talking about, because if you would know what I'm going through, you would not even say I'm going to be okay. So how do we, for people that don't experience anxiety in their mind, there's no even connection between what is really happening with their child and that empathy is sometimes like it's hard to access until you go through it to understand that depths of hell yeah and I try
0: hard in the book to try to help parents connect a little bit with the experience of what it is like to be a child with a lot of anxiety because I do think that having that kind of empathy does help but here's what I'll say about panic attacks there's not a lot that you can do during a panic attack that is going to be incredibly effective or really well-received. When you're in a panic attack, you are in the grip of a very intense, very powerful emotion. When I try to explain this to parents, sometimes I'll say, just imagine, and they don't like imagining this because it's not a fun thing to imagine, but I'll say, bear with me. Just imagine for a moment that your kid didn't come home from school Mm. and you called their friend's parents. Mm. Nobody saw him. Mm -hmm. You call the teacher. They say he left an hour and a half ago, and they're not answering the phone. And every horrible scenario in the world is running through your mind. You're standing at the window. You're looking out. You have a hand on the phone, and your heart and your mind are both racing like a Mm -hmm. mile a minute, and that's a horrible experience. Now, imagine that I were to walk up to you in that moment, and I were to say, I want you to breathe really slow take a deep breath <laughs> relax free your mind imagine a bubble you're like what would you do honestly if it was me I'd probably punch you in the, the face. face exactly
1: or they are uh, really like make sure you're not within four feet of me that there I is, cannot right? like, yeah
0: exactly be like get away from me before I do right. something because it is such a conflict it is such it, like you are like 10 light years from where I am and that doesn't like help in that moment when your child is having a panic attack in that moment there's just not a lot that you can say or do so what are the things that you can do number one you can stay calm yourself because the one thing that's not going to help is you freaking out along with it Mm. if you get just as panicked then you're not going to be helping them
1: that's not the confidence that we talk That's about in the recipe. Happens. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know,
0: I. you talked about flying and the bathrooms. I used to be afraid of flying, but not because of the bathrooms, just because of the flying and mm-hmm. the crash. Right.
1: <laughs> I still have that. I still have that. And I still, I'm sure every single time that I'm going to die and every time, and I travel a lot. And every time my kids get a speech, if I die, this is what you're going to do. And like, they already roll their eyes. Yes, I still have it. And
0: it's okay. Because it goes through your mind, through your mind. But when when that plane is bumping around Mm. and ripping the armrests and your knuckles are white and your belly is tightened, like in that moment, you don't want to look over at the flight crew and see them freaked out. Oh, good point. That is not going to help you in that moment. You want to look over at them and you want to see them saying, hey, would you like a drink? Like you want to see them being normal being calm. And that tells you, okay, like I still feel really scared, but I guess at some level, it's a reminder that I guess we're probably okay, even though everything inside of me is freaking out. If you look over at them and you see them scared, oh my God, like <laughs> that's not going to help you. So that's number one, is just stay calm yourself. Number two is remember, as a parent, remember that panic attacks, honestly, they are not dangerous. Is something that Like, a lot of parents actually don't realize. I say to parents, if your kid is healthy enough to run a quick sprint and still be fine after, then they are also healthy enough to have a panic attack and still be fine after. Because your body is pretty much doing the same thing, right? Right. When you run a quick sprint, your heart's going to race. You're going to be sweaty. You're going to be trembly. You might get a little lightheaded, right? Like, all of that is going to happen to you. You're going to be out of breath because you ran quickly. Mm -hmm. But it's no more danger to your body when it's happening because of panic. So remind yourself that this is a short thing. It's going to pass. You stay calm and you let it pass. And it will. And that is a better approach, I think, than trying to do a whole lot in the moment to try to yank them out of the panic attack. You may be making it longer rather than shorter. So if you as a parent, if you have found something that works really well, use it. Mm -hmm. But For a lot of parents, there really isn't something that's going to work really well. So just stay calm. If giving them a hug helps, okay, you give them a hug, stay calm, it'll pass. And you start using those supportive statements, not in the grip of a panic attack, right? Like You start using those supportive statements for the thousand other moments throughout the day when your kid is nervous, worried, distressed, anxious, scared, et cetera.
1: Or nervous about a panic attack. That I'm nervous caught. about having it. Usually it's the cycle of a panic attack, being afraid that it's going to come again. And me as a parent that had panic attacks. I did not deal very well in the beginning when a child of mine was having it because I was experiencing it with them. And that was the worst thing because they felt right away, oh, my God, mommy's even scared. And all I was saying, I was trying to say, oh, my God, I'm so I know what you're feeling. It's awful. It's terrible. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And no, they needed to say. I know what it feels. It's really brutal, but it's going to pass. I know it feels bad and I know it's scary, but I'm telling you're safe. It's going to pass. And I do this with my clients, which is so crazy, but I couldn't do it with my child. I couldn't because it, could be it was hard. too close to home. So yeah,
0: it could be harder, you know, I worked with a family of a child uh, who was young, uh, probably 11 or so and, and, and had panic attacks. And she would often have like panic attack at night and she would, come to her parents' bedroom and she would be, you know, in a panic attack and out of breath and her heart's racing and she thinks she's dying and her
2: parents would take her to the ER. This episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? Maybe it's anxiety, stress, or worry, or what's going on in the world right now. BetterHelp.com will assess your needs and match you with your licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available, depending on what you need, and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor and betterhelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches and make it easy and free to change your counselors if you need to and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aids available betterhelp.com wants you to start living a happier life today so visit betterhelp.com slash hope to recharge that's betterhelp.com slash hope to recharge and join over a million people have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional you'll also get 10 percent off your first month once again that's betterhelp.com hope to recharge
0: Her parents would take her to the ER again and again. And the doctors in the hospital would plead with these parents, like, please stop bringing her in. She's fine. It's just anxiety, whatever. But they were so overwhelmed by their anxiety in response to her panic that they found it really hard not to do that. But if you think about it from the child's perspective, if you think you're dying, think how scary it is to be rushed to the emergency room at night right like that is such a confirmation literally that this is an emergency whereas if you're able in that moment as a parent if you are able to calm yourself enough to say wow that looks awful and just leave it at that or give them that hug but stay calm yourself you're going to start you're going to start the process of tuning back down that anxiety rather than the emergency crisis response which seems really sensitive because here I'm leaping into action but you're actually elevating the anxiety even more.
1: So I just want to share when I was going through panic attacks, I did end up in the ER many times and I needed to hear that I was okay. My mind didn't believe that I was okay. And I said, you guys don't even know what I'm going through. So I don't believe you. I want the monitors and the tests to tell me. And after a few times of doing that, a local Hatella guy said to me, listen, instead of rushing you to the ER, just call me. I'll check your heartbeat. We're going to tell you. I'm going to be your confirmation that your mind needs at the time. And then eventually he taught me until today. I'm so grateful to him because it it taught me that I was safe. And he said, OK, this is what's happening And then my psychiatrist explained to me what happened in my brain and I was able to rationalize it while it's happening and breathe through it and have the tools. But if Mm -hmm. I wouldn't first go to the hospital the first few times and see the monitor saying you're not dying. I wouldn't believe anybody. And I was an adult. I was an adult. So I felt like I'm an adult in the room. So I have to make the decisions for myself to feel safe. So mm-hmm. it's very tricky. Sometimes you need the reassure. Okay, tell me that the, that the doctors and the monitors are telling me that I'm really not going to die. And then I could do the practices that mm-hmm. you're going to tell. It's it, it could be very reassuring. I understand as a parent why it's not okay to take a child If you know what's happening and to say, but I was the parent at the time. I didn't have the parent telling me you're okay. And I was the parent trying to live for my children and not die here. And I was sure Mm. I was dying. I was sure. And I I was giving all the instructions, what's going to happen after I die. And I was dying within a few weeks. I realized, okay, I was able to, I'm surviving it. It's just hell. So how do we get through it? But there is something in the brain that needs a reassurance. And if the parent can be, that's mm-hmm. amazing. That's amazing. So you spoke about the acceptance plus confidence equals support. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So that is the recipe that Dr. Ellie speaks about is the that we have to give the confidence After the support, can you just elaborate how it matters what comes first?
0: I usually would say start with the acceptance, with the validation, because if you can't let your child see that you get it, the likelihood of them really hearing anything else that you have to say is going to be smaller, right? If maybe you think I'm going to say the acceptance piece after, but you might lose them by then, (laughs) you might lose them already because it's like, if you start only with the confidence they're, what they are hearing, maybe you don't, you think this isn't a big deal. That's why you have confidence. So you want them to know, I actually do get it. I know this is a huge deal for you. I know this is a really uncomfortable thing. Now, honestly, if you put those two ingredients in the pot, if they're both there, you won't go too far wrong. And I would be more focused on just making sure you have both ingredients than on mm-hmm. the perfect order and formula. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't have to be textbook perfect in order to be really supportive for your child, but I usually would say start with the acceptance so that your child knows that you get it, and that when you're saying, I have confidence you can handle it, they know that you mean handle something really hard, and not just handle something that maybe you perceive as trivial or are dismissing, and so that's why I would usually put the acceptance first.
1: So what I found with my child when I when I validated and I really validated because I went through it, the empathy was huge to a way that it was stopping me. I was accommodating and we're going to go into the next chapter of accommodating and how that can be so damaging. But I found that as soon as I said, I know you can do this, you'll be okay. I, I did it, too. I'm telling you, you'll be so Proud of yourself when you get through it. It's it's freedom. I know it's hard. It's one of the hardest things, but you'll be able to. I know you can. And I lost them then, and they were very angry. You're just saying it. You're just saying it. You don't understand. Uh, you have more faith. You were stronger. You knew better. You don't understand the the fighting me back. And I and you touch upon that in the book.
0: Yeah, because I I think it's really important to. Bear in mind a couple of things. One is what I've already said, which is you don't need to convince them. This is, it's like hard to wrap your head around because usually if you set out to deliver a message to your child, like you can't feel successful until they've accepted it, right? Until they've uh, signed on and gotten on board and jumped on the bandwagon, et cetera. Here, I wouldn't make that your goal. I think it's really important to just focus on. What I believe. And so when your child says, no, you don't get it because for you it's different, you just say, that's what I think. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And you leave it at that. You don't say, no, I do get it because blah, 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 blah. Once you start pushing back, you're inviting them to a kind of arm wrestling, power struggle kind of thing. And it's not really going to lead anywhere good. Like the likelihood that if you push so much harder, they're going to say, okay, fine, I guess you're right, is small. And so all you need to do is say, that's what I believe. That's what I think. Now, the other thing, though, is to bear in mind that what your child says in that moment, it's not the be all and end all of everything that they experience and everything that they believe. There are there's more than one voice inside your child's head. Mm. I don't mean that in a (laughs) hallucination. Yeah, yeah voices, like inner voices, right? Like Mm -hmm. the different parts of us, right? There's a part of me that thinks I can't handle this. It's too hard. I'm too weak. Mm -hmm. But there's also a part of me that wants to be strong, that wants to be healthy, that wants to be free of this. Maybe in this moment, maybe in this moment that you're saying this to your child, the part that feels overwhelmed, the part that feels anxious, the part that feels that they can't handle it, maybe that's the loudest voice. And so that's what's going to come out. But it doesn't mean that they're not also hearing the confidence. It doesn't mean that has no effect. And it takes time for things to make a difference.
1: Now you say it once and then the next day, oh, I'm anxiety free. That's it. Okay. Okay. Back into the bathrooms. Exactly.
0: If you want to get in shape and you go to the gym and you work out really hard and you come back home and you look in the mirror, you're going to think going to the gym is a waste of time, right? right? Because you look the same, you weigh the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing changed. Does that mean that doing it is a waste of time? This is hypothetical to me because those who know me know I don't frequent gyms very often, but uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we can agree on the principle that says, if you go, you're doing something, you're investing in something, but it's going to take more than once. It's going to take repeated investment and you may have to be undoing years of having given other messages. your child that sound really different from the supportive message. All Mm. the things you've said to them, all the things you've said about them, it takes time for this to make a difference. So you don't need to convince them, but you also don't need to think that it's useless if they don't right away respond with a big thank you and a hug and you've changed my life.
1: And And I think the biggest fear I think for parents is, will they feel that I didn't show up for them? Like that fear of the the next part of your book is accommodation. Like we accommodate their anxiety by giving into them and pampering them and and protecting them from experiencing it, which is what you explained so beautifully, how we're really doing a disservice, but we're really... Doing it for ourselves because we cannot see our kids suffer, and we don't want them to think for a second that we didn't show up for them or didn't care about them. And we don't want them to be on the couch when they're twenty-five and saying, "My mother didn't understand, and I had panic attacks, and she ignored me, and she was the worst mother." I think that is our biggest fear as a parent—that our kids will feel that we neglected them or didn't see their pain. And then we come into the next chapter, which is accommodating their anxiety and OCD that you speak about. First acknowledge like seeing where are we are accommodating it. And it's you do it so masterfully in this in the book of wow, right away my light bulb, my, my lights were like, boom, oh my God, I have to like, and here I thought I was the best mother. Wow, I am letting them sleep in my bed when they're having anxiety. I am not traveling as much because they're having anxiety when I travel. I am letting them eat only specific foods that don't trigger their anxiety. I'm like, I am the best mother. I'm going down. I'm going to have a book about (laughs) the best Jewish mother that accommodated her child's anxiety because of my empathy to her, because I know what anxiety is. Little did I know once I read your book that I was doing a huge disservice. So can you just elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, I think you touched on it so well in in everything you said, and it's really important to me to be clear that this book and everything that I do, this is not about blaming parents, it's not about criticizing parents. First of all, I and I say this in the book and I say it every time I talk about the topic, I genuinely do not believe, and there is no good reason to believe, that parents are the cause of children having anxiety disorders in the huge majority of cases. If you are a really horrible person and you are a terrible parent, but I'm talking about really terrible things like abuse and neglect and maltreatment, of course, if you do those things, you could have a really damaging impact on your child's mental health and maybe be the cause of their mental health problems. But that's not the story for the huge majority of kids who have an anxiety disorder. They have anxiety because they were born with that vulnerability, with that predisposition, with that tendency to have anxiety. And so this is not about saying you, the parent, are the problem. And I think it's so easy to fall into the trap that you were describing of I'm doing everything. I'm bending over backward. I'm making so many sacrifices in order to help my child not feel anxious, because I don't want them to be anxious. It's the most natural, frankly, lovely, beautiful thing in in the world. It's so natural for us as parents. But when you have a child with an anxiety problem, those sacrifices end up working against them instead of for them. Because anxiety disorders, they're like hijackers. They take wonderful, healthy, adaptive systems, but they make them run wild. They make them go crazy. So that happens for the child in themselves, right? Like, It's great that they have an anxiety alarm system to keep them out of danger and trouble that will alert them when they are in danger. But if you have an anxiety disorder, that alarm is going off all the time for all the wrong reasons, because it's been hijacked by the disorder. And the same thing happens between the child and the parent. It is normal and beautiful and sensitive and wonderful that you are willing to notice when your child has a problem and to try to prevent them from distress. That's a positive thing, but the anxiety disorder makes it run wild so that now you're stepping in all the time to prevent all these different kinds of distress and fear and anxiety. But what you're doing is you're giving your child the message, you can't cope with this. You can't handle it. Your child is scared at night, so you sleep next to them. They feel better in that moment. Of course they do. But tomorrow, do they feel like they can handle being alone? No. They even more convinced they can't, and their impairment relating to that belief is just going to grow, and then it can, then it'll be, I can't go to a sleepover with my friend because how am I going to sleep if I'm with mom, or you have a child with social anxiety, and you always speak in place of them because it makes them uncomfortable when people talk to them, and they have to answer, and they get shy and awkward, and so you speak in place of them, and you're trying to help, and they feel better in the moment. But tomorrow, are they gonna be more able to handle that social situation? No, they're gonna be less able to and the impairment will grow because how do you form relationships and have friends and live independently, et cetera, et cetera. And so the accommodation is something that is happening in almost every single family of a child who has anxiety. We have studied this literally around the world right? We have data from every place you could imagine, pretty much from Australia to Asia to Middle East to Israel, for example, and, and the US and everywhere. And about 100% of parents who have an anxious child say, Yeah, we accommodate frequently. Sometimes that's just answering lots of questions, providing endless reassurance. Sometimes it's the things we don't do. Like we don't have guests over because it would make the child uncomfortable. We don't have the news on because it's going to trigger the child's worries. We don't go out as a couple because the kid's going to be upset if we're not there with them, etc., etc. And, or if you have OCD, there's tons of accommodation. Oh my God. Yes. Tons and tons of accommodation yeah. that can happen as you're doing rituals with the child and checks and listening to their confessions and like changing your whole life so that it can look like an entire family has OCD when actually it's just that one child and everybody else accommodating around it. But those accommodations consistently, they predict more severe anxiety over time, more impairment. And importantly, they also predict worse treatment outcomes for things like cognitive behavioral therapy and even for medications. And it's really important to be able to reduce that so that you can give your child the sense that they can cope. But your question, which I'm finally getting to, (laughs) was, but aren't they going to feel abandoned? Yeah. Aren't they going to feel... Like we're not as you put it showing up for them when not
1: compassionate, not not caring, caring. or belittling their experience, which we validated before.
0: And that's and some kids will even say that explicitly. Mm -hmm. Some kids even say if you're not doing the accommodation, you don't care about me, you don't love me, you don't get it, all of these really hard things to hear. And that's why there's a few really important things. One is we always will start with that support, because we're not just going to one day stop accommodating. We're going to start with that supportive message so that when we go to reduce the accommodation, we're doing it on a background of really communicating to this child that we do get. It. Now, I'm not saying that means that the child is never going to say you don't care, but it's important that we frame it within that support. The other thing is we don't
1: just say, stop all your accommodations. It's not like a turn on, turn off. Oh, we accommodated. Then we read Dr. Ellie's uh, book, and that's it. Off. More accommodation. Okay,
0: (laughs) turn off the switch. Exactly. No, we don't do that. If you work through this book, you'll see there's a really step-by-step approach. The first thing you'll do, like you said, is we're going to figure out what are the accommodations. And then we're going to pick one thing. Just one thing, not all of them. There may be tons of accommodations that you're doing, but we're going to pick one thing. And even within that one thing, we may start to reduce it a little bit gradually. We may not do it all at once. And we're going to let the child know in advance what we're doing and how and why we're doing it so that it's not just like I'm sick of this or I'm fed up with the need to accommodate you or like grow up and be a big boy. No, we're letting them know I'm doing this because I don't think I'm helping you. When I do that accommodation, you don't have to use the word accommodation if you're talking to a young child, but when I do that thing, I don't believe I'm helping you to get better. And so I'm making this change and I know it'll be hard, but I also, I'm sure you can handle it. And then you start putting in to action that plan to actually reduce the accommodation, but it's a really thoughtful kind of step-by-step systematic approach rather than just like a slogan of Mm -hmm. accommodation isn't good, so stop. Nobody can really succeed if all they have is a slogan.
1: If you want to hear the premium content where I ask Dr. Leibowitz a few questions from my own personal life regarding my children and his incredible advice that he gives me that is worth maybe thousands of dollars, go grab the listen. It's a few dollars. It can change your life, change your relationships, change your mindset, and help you in your future with assisting your children properly with their anxiety and OCD. Grab the link in the show notes, premium content, Dr. Ellie Leibowitz. If you know anyone that is struggling with children that are going through anxiety or OCD, forward this episode to them. You might save a life. You might save a relationship. You might bring hope and healing to others.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Bye till next time.